Cheers, John. Hi, Kate. Cheers. What you drinking? Uh, you know what I have? I have Jameson Iris whiskey. There's a there's a reason. The reason oh. is, yeah, the reason is that I had a couple jars of pickles from a local Philadelphia pickle maker. Okay. And I could not let that pickle juice go to waste. It was so good. So I made, so I had pickle, I have to have the Jameson to do picklebacks. Are you familiar with this? Oh, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> so I went out and bought Jameson just to go with the pickle juice. Nice. Jameson was my like college whiskey, um, like college and sort of early 20s in Minneapolis. That was sort of the whiskey of the times. The like starter whiskey? Well, yeah, maybe. My first whiskey, honestly, was actually John Powers. I don't even uh, know. Well, it's had a revival recently, so it's an Irish whiskey. And, you know, back in the day, uh, 20 years ago or whatever, it was kind of a bottom shelf <laughs> secret. Like, it's mm. actually quite a great whiskey, but Irish whiskey, but it wasn't known like Jameson, so it was pretty cheap, but I think actually just as good, if not better. But now, I think... I guess they, they've had a little bit of a revival the last few years. So now it's it's gotten pulled up a couple shelves and it's gotten... The, the, the hipsters found out about it. Well, I don't <laughs> think even the hipsters found out about it. I think the hipsters were marketed to about oh, it. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> so it's got a little bit of a glow up, which is Sweet. too bad because now it's more expensive. But <laughs> So what do you have? I'm still on the Basil Hayden. Yes. Kate and Karina's house whiskey. Yeah. So cheers. Cheers. So we're going to try and keep this one sort of short today. We'll see mm -hmm. how that goes. But you and I were doing some brainstorming, talking through future episodes and we were talking about this thing that it's been coming up in my world a lot. A lot of folks have been coming to me talking about this and asking questions about kind of on-ramps to employees becoming partners or offering employees equity or profits share or sort of various ways you can kind of on-ramp an employee towards ownership, if not even into business ownership. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about that and, you know, I think we'll circle back on that topic and some thoughts on how you do that. But what we, you and I were talking about as part of this is that we've noticed a shift in language, which is that there used to be the way that folks talked about kind of what things you can do for employees that are nice things, I'll say, in the most general basic sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of folks used to talk about that as incentives. Like, how do you incentivize your employees? That was sort of the framing word. But you and I have noticed, and of course, like, with the kinds of folks Wanderwell works with and the way that we work, I do want to fess that we're probably a little bit ahead of the bell curve around trends, at least in this direction. So You definitely are. Yeah. For sure. Going to note mm -hmm. that. But what I've noticed in, is that increasingly folks are using language that's more about caretaking. Like, how can I really take good care of my employees? 
how can I create really great jobs for them? Like it's not an incentivizing language. It's a different kind of language. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I would add one thing to that is the incentivizing language both had the incentive, which was like the carrot, right? Mm -hmm. How can I keep my, what can I do to keep my employee happy, I guess? Yep. Uh, But it also had the stick aspect to it too, which was sort of like the whole idea of handcuffs, golden handcuffs, you know, like you make Mm -hmm. it. Say more about that. I mean, it connected with with an incentive because if you didn't have the incentive, people wouldn't care. But, you know, it's once they got it, making it painful for them to leave because they would lose it. Yeah. That's the handcuff. You know, it's something you have something so good that you don't want to leave or you can't leave. Is that similar even, you know, like some some 401k plans have vesting periods? Like I know my my first full-time job out of college had this and I I didn't get to walk with my 401k because it was like mm. five years or something like that that you had to stay is a long time especially for for a 22 year old this was the employer paying into the retirement plan but you would only get that paid in amount if you stayed through a certain threshold yes it's a similar kind of concept i mean it could take a lot of different shapes it could be just the straight on vesting period you know you don't get the thing unless you're there for a period of time, like, yeah. like your situation that you're talking about. And that could be that could be the ownership, the bonus, the whatever it is that's there. Yep. Or it could be something that people uh they could have a nice compensation package that includes like incentive bonuses and other things that just make it really hard for them to go because they'll lose it. But but yes, it's really the same thing. It's the idea that um whatever the the incent- I'm going to keep using that word. I want to use a different word, but whatever the incentive is that uh, you have to be there for a while in order to get it or keep it. So I want to take a stab at what the incentive language is about. Yeah. Which, as you said, is like this carrot idea, which, you know, when I think about carrots, I'm like, think about trying to get some creature that likes a carrot to walk faster. <laughs> There's this sort of like um, treadmill productivity sort of visual that comes up. Mm-hmm. And I think underlying that sort of language and structure is this more adversarial lens of the employment relationship where workers are just there to do their jobs. They're lazy. If you leave them unmanaged or to their own devices. They're not going to do very much. They're going to try and do the minimum. And so bosses need to put carrots out to extract the maximum value they can from these workers. So it comes from this sort of very, I think, classic labor relation of owner-employee exploitation loops and things like that. And this idea that, you know, employees are trying to kind of get away with whatever they can. And I think this is really, you know, I've seen this sort of um, rear its head again with remote work. Because when remote work is deployed badly, like a lot of the sort of um, ways that companies have managed remote work really poorly also are undergirded by this belief that left to their own devices, 
employees will always sit at home and play video games all day unless you surveil them. Surveil mm-hmm. them. Obviously, I don't think that's true. Um, that's not how I run Wonderwell. Like, that's not, I don't, yeah. I don't think that that's actually true. That's not a belief I have. But I do think that's kind of what's underneath this viewpoint at its base. And it sounds really cynical, but I think it's kind of true. It seems like it to me too. And also very sort of that like traditional economics view of human behavior, you know, that you can just sort of give people more money and they'll act a certain way always. So on the flip side, you know, when we got to this more like caretaking language, and this is really like literally people coming to me and saying, I really want to take good care of my team or you know, I hired my first employee. They're amazing. It's like been so great to have them on the team. And I really want to make sure that they're well supported. They're like, they feel good. That this job works for them. Um, so it's really like kind of shifting the locus of emphasis. And I think it's, it's reflecting a more mutualistic power dynamic and like kind of shifting that hierarchy and sort of scarcity model of humans are always always need to be paid and incentivized or they're going to be lazy and shifting more to a idea that workers are generally good they're trying to do their best and so let's take support that and take good care of them it feels to me like a shift in views of labor relations i can see see it when you say it that way the other thing you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about this was how business owners um, are integrating that relationship with their employees into what they want to do with their business. I actually feel this way too about Wanderwell, and it's something that's that feels very true for me. But a lot of the folks that I talk to all the time, I think are increasingly naming that when they build out teams, that creating really supportive employment is actually one of the core purposes of their business. And that's different because traditionally, and if we talk about sort of the like capitalist archetypes, that's not really what businesses are for. They're for extracting value, they're for profit, they're for all these things. And the workers are what generate that, but it's not really about them. You're trying to get as much as possible out of them. And so this is instead saying, like, actually, one of the most satisfying purposes for me personally as a business owner is to be able to really take good care of people, to set up jobs that are flexible, that pay enough, that have aim to have the kinds of benefits that feel supportive, that aren't shitty exploitative jobs. And so it's sort of using the business as a container for reimagining economic relations a little bit. And I'll say that's not the same thing as systemic change. So this isn't like changing the economy at large on a macro level, but it is a way, I think, to push back against some of the more toxic exploitative mechanisms of owning a business and having employees. Yeah, to me, that sounds like the shift. Yeah. You know, that sounds like the shift and the other stuff sort of follows from uh, people 
having those values and building those values into their companies. Totally. So maybe it's helpful to name some what that looks like a little bit. You're me a look. I'm like, yeah, do no, it. Sure. Okay. <laughs> well, I will. <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, I already said, you know, this thing about remote work and surveillance. I think undergirding this is actually a basic level of trust. And starting to re-examine, like, how do we think about, like, because a labor relation where you feel like you have to have carrots and sticks to make somebody do something beyond like the fact that you're already paying people to show up and do work Mm -hmm. underneath all of that is a distrust. Like you don't believe that the people that you're paying to do a job are going to do the job well, unless you bring out some carrots and sticks about it. The shift here is to say like, if I've hired well, like folks that have, this is a good fit for them, this role, then they are, for the most part, most people are going to naturally try and do their best. So how do we create structures that are going to facilitate that, make it easy for them to do their best? Again, I'm saying that like underneath all of this is actually a shift in uh, starting by trusting people, that they're not going to try and like, steal your money as a business owner or steal your time or like whatever the sort of they they owe me mm-hmm. type of orientation um but some of the mechanisms i think that we're talking about uh, the one and this is sort of starting at the end of the spectrum maybe is profit distribution and setting up mechanisms where that excess value quote unquote that is generated by the people working in the business is returned to them in part, um, at the end of the year, every six months, something like that. I think uh, really taking seriously uh, salaries and compensation and paying attention to market rates, uh, having structures that are transparent, that talk about why you're paying somebody what they are, what those choices are about. Well, and then you have actual equity ownership depending on what that looks like in the business. And that's something that can come with kind of ownership privileges or not. You mean like voting, governance and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that can look like full partnership, but it also doesn't have to. Yeah. I mean, if you ask me that those are the main categories, there's a lot of nuance that can go on in, in each one of them. But we said we were keeping this short, so I'm not going to Yeah, but I mean, aside from aside from setting up the kind of compensation structures that you're talking, like the base compensation structure, you know, you're talking about a profits distribution plan of some sort, you know, and that could be everything from discretionary bonuses to some formulaic, you know, here's how everybody is eligible and participates and here's what they're sharing in and so on. So there's a whole continuum of... Mm-hmm discretion through, you know, formality there, but a lot of nuance that can go on. And then you have the equity piece too, which is also the same kind of thing. It could have governance, non usually not, but, you know, it could have the governance feature and then it can have some of these carrots and sticks like vesting and other sorts of things yep. to make sure yep. people are there. Again, there's so many things within that, but those are kind of the, the things. Yeah. 
And that that leads me to one of my questions about this. Yes, John. Which is, which is that, you know, the I mean, I agree with you that the the reasons and the language around doing this are very important. But the question that comes up is when you break it down to the actual thing that's being, you know, that the employee is receiving, or say again, maybe that's not even good language, but like the participation rights that we're having here, are those actually different when you break them down technically and write them into contracts and look at what the employee is actually getting? Is that different regardless of the language? I think for the most part from a like an actual legal structure or just the kinds of things you would put in a job letter cuz you know at, at will employment in the US we don't generally have contracts but I don't think so I think it's really more of a shift in ethos to how can this business really care for all of the humans within it mm. and to look at employees even knowing that they might leave and move on, like while they're in the business, how can we best care for each other? And to like yeah. use the business as a a very small economy to be able to do that. So we can make certain choices in a different paradigm in the sort of more traditional paradigm. I'm only thinking of myself as the owner. I'm the one that needs to, I'm gonna get whatever I can out of this. And so I'm going to give give the employee the minimum possible to create the kind of, uh, you know. And shouldn't they be grateful? Yes, yes. Versus, you know, I've created this mechanism. You know, business is a repeatable process that makes money. So as the money flows through that business and that system, like how can we use that to distribute to everybody and to consider the care and needs of everybody within that business. Yeah. And there's certainly limitations. Like I think, like I look at Karina, my partner who works for a large advertising agency that generally is pretty, like I think they have really good benefits and they take good care of people. Like she gets her gym sneakers paid for by her company. <laughs> and sometimes I'm like, I wish, I wish my company would pay for my yeah. gym sneakers. <laughs> yeah, <I too. laughs> but um, this is a very large company with a huge group. So there's lots of resources there. Uh, you know, that's not generally going to be the case within smaller or micro businesses. Like the, the resources are scaled and limited. So like, can I do fully subsidized health care for everybody? Maybe not. That might, like, not be feasible. But it doesn't mean you can't work towards other structures or sort of means of caretaking. It's just that there's, there are limits to the problem sorts of problems we can solve yeah. in a country that doesn't generally take care of people. I haven't thought about this as, as deeply as you because, you know, my job in it is definitely more mechanic, you know, like, the nuts and bolts, but I could see it that even within the the structures that we're talking about for the employee participation, like the the benefit could be more generous. I have seen that, you know. So the pool of profits is larger. Uh, the individual amounts that that each employee is is eligible for are larger. The vesting periods are shorter. You know, if they're getting equity and the company has value, there needs to be some sort of buy in. And so the valuation of the company is as low as possible to satisfy the IRS, you know, stuff like that, just to make it 
easier and, and better for the employee. I have one more question, and this may or may not be relevant, but have you seen scenarios where employers have implemented these kinds of processes and like employees don't really care? Mm. I mean, that might be a little bit extreme way to say it, but you know, it's just yeah. not really, res it's not resonating, creating that kind of relationship you're talking about. I have a word of caution. And also, yeah, I do have a response to that. Um, well, the thing that actually this came up recently in some conversations with some colleagues about four-day work weeks, because that's obviously like, this has been a buzzy thing lately. Mm -hmm. There's been like news headlines that said the five-day work week is officially over. Mm -hmm. That's not actually true. But, but this is one actually where I think there are companies, and I've seen this happen, where four-day work week becomes the sort of buzzy idea. And if you're not considering workload in other circumstances, all that's doing is compressing all of your work in four days. And I think ultimately, and you know, and I've had this conversation with a particular client that's been trying to work this out. Like they have a team member, and I think this is common, whose parent. And like, they just want to be able to pick, disappear for a couple hours in the afternoon to pick their kids up from school and like do kid stuff for a couple hours. And to actually have to like stuff all of their work into four days would be really stressful. So they're just looking for a level of flexibility and autonomy and the supportive structures that allow for that, like around communication and all of this stuff that allow for that. But you know, when they've actually asked their team, most of their team's like, no, I don't really want to do that. That sounds horrible. Like they just, they just want yeah. more, they just want a level of flexibility. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I do think that there's some things that for sure, and I do think it's a good idea. Like if you're going to try and implement more benefits, actually ask people what they want. Um, Cause it may be that retirement's more important than healthcare or something like that. I don't know. Right. But the context that I've seen it most in is where where founders have gone through a whole equity, like we built out these equity processes to to include employees in ownership and like being at meetings where we're explaining this to the employees and just getting these blank stares like, and the reality was like, they just wanted to get more money at the end of the year, you know? So like yeah. a bonus plan would have been a, an easy thing to do as opposed to some sort of equity thing. That's a really good point because often enough, mm -hmm. equity becomes a tax liability for the employee in the sh in the short term, without all that much cash payout unless the business were to exit. Sometimes just doing a little profit distribution is actually more supportive. Yes, yeah, yes, for sure. Um, the word of caution, I think. This is sort of where, where I'd end my rant on today. <laughs> rant off. Yeah. <laughs> I think the word of caution is for owners in particular to make sure that they've cared for themselves as part of the structure because there is and and I would I would say this tilts towards people who women, BIPOC queers, folks that have not generally been well cared for by our structures of domination and culture. Um, mm -hmm. this, this tends to trend towards us folk. Um, 
will often over caretake for their team and kind of martyr themselves in the process. So I would say that's my one word of caution here is like, make sure you're also part of that team that deserves care. Good one. Yeah. Thanks, John, for listening to me. (laughs) I love it. No, I love it. I think I think people should appreciate that perspective. We'll circle back on more of this question of employee equity and profit share and that stuff because I think it's something that's coming up a lot and it's worth getting into more. Yeah, maybe next time, um, like sort of the how as opposed to the why. Yeah, I like that. All right. Cool. Talk to you later, John. Bye. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Fridays. Whiskey Fridays is a collaboration between my friend and colleague, John Gerber, who you can find at unlawyer.com. And my friend and colleague, Kate Tyson, who's at wanderwellconsulting.com. If this episode resonated with you in any way, we'd love for you to share it with a friend. And if you have any whiskey recommendations, please share those with us as well. Talk to you next time. Thank you. Am I supposed to say something down? Yeah, you should. You should. You should ask for whiskey recommendations. Oh. And if you have any whiskey rec- recommendations, please send them to us. Thank you. All right, that was good. Whiskey recommendations for sure. Wait, I gotta put that in there so I don't forget.